All right, well, welcome to our second episode of Burritos, Breaks, and Flies. Um, today, we are actually here with myself, Ben, and who do we have with us today, Ben? Uh, we have a very special guest today, Chris Sega, with the Nature Conservancy. Um, we're actually here right now at the McCarran Ranch, and um, we're in a, a front room here. We've got a fire going and a pot belly stove, and um, yeah, we're really honored to have you here with us, Chris. Um, kind of give us a, a rundown of who's Chris Sega. All right, well, thanks, thanks for having me here, guys. Um, uh, so yeah, my name is Chris Sega. I work for the Nature Conservancy. On, I'm the uh, <clears throat> restoration projects manager for the uh, Truckee River project. Uh, Nature Conservancy has been engaged down here on the Truckee River since uh, roughly 2000 uh, on this project. And so I've been um, down here managing the, and implementing the restoration work we're doing on the river since uh, I, think I started in 2007, in August of 2007. So quite a while. Um, seen a lot of change over the time. Um, it's uh, it's a great place, and you know the setting that you, you're talking about that we're we're sitting here in is the uh, the original ranch house that was built in uh, uh, I think it was 1905 mm -hmm. here at McCarran Ranch. Um, it's a little I don't know it's not even. 800 square feet, I don't even think. Pretty small. Yeah. yeah. It's cozy. cozy. Yeah, it's cozy, yeah. <laughs> Especially right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's in pretty good shape right now, and uh, it's warm. It's yeah, warm. yeah, so. it's perfect, because it's not, it's not warm outside. <laughs> yeah, we were talking yeah. about before the podcast, just this is a place where you could spend hours and hours and hours in here yeah. with the fire. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that you brought us out here, because I know we... We had a couple of choices of locations where we could go and talk about this, but the first thing that popped in my head when you said, "Hey, let's 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 talk about this place out here," I'm like, "Where the heck are we gonna go? Like out in the bushes? You know, it's gonna be super sure. cold." And I'm like, "Oh," and you brought this place to life. So excellent, solid move. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not too bad outside right now. I mean, it's, it's early afternoon, so you know, right now it's it's uh, it's actually beautiful out there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're not even a hundred yards from the river. You know, we're dead yeah. center on on these projects that that we've worked on. This is where we started. The Nature Conservancy started down here. Um, you know, back in in two thousand two thousand and one, we were negotiating the purchase of McCarran Ranch, which now we're sort of sitting in on the on the west end of the Tahoe Reno Industrial Center. Where you know Tesla's happening and Switch and Microsoft and Apple data centers and all of those things are out here and those really started happening after you know I don't know 2013 2014 that stuff really started coming in um, big down here but you know for the longest time you know this was was a ranch um, in a uh, you know, I think a little bit of a forgotten part of the Truckee River in in the past couple of decades, you know, down here, people, did, you know, there wasn't a lot of public access and nobody wanted to come down here. The, the river didn't seem like a spot down here that was, had anything going on. You know, people weren't fishing a whole lot, um, you know, because of years and years of, of sort of a, um, you know, environmental exploitation of resources in the region, you know, that, that started in, in, uh, you know, right after 
the Comstock load was discovered and yeah. people really started moving to the region in earnest. And uh, um, so the Nature Conservancy, we, we <clears throat> had been aware of, you know, the issues on the lower Truckee River and the, and the, um, the ecological issues down here for a long time. Um, and you know, there's, there's a, there's a huge history of that. I mean, I know that, that <laughs> the spider hanging down. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. You wanted to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> like I know I, that, that one of the first things we did was talk about that, that, uh, um, that history of the Truckee river that's on the, um, uh, state engineer's website, the, right. the chronology of the Truckee river and talks about all of those. Um, impacts to the Truckee River and you know we're coming in here at the end of, of all that stuff and trying to make a difference uh, the Nature Conservancy is with with uh, um, with our work on the Truckee River and, and you know in a nutshell what we've tried to do down here and I think we've been you know very successful at it is to um, reverse some of the um, the channelization and uh, desertification of the Truckee River down here um, east of the Truckee Meadows. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's like, where do we jump in? What do we, where do we start? I mean, what do you think it would be good to start with? I mean, I know you've, well, you've read the chronology and yeah. you, you kind of have the whole arc of it. But. Right, right, yeah, and digging into that, and thanks for that that resource because it was yeah. it was beyond a resource i mean it was a history lesson you know and it had it went in so many different directions as far as how agriculture affected the flow of the river mm-hmm. how the fishing the overfishing of the Truckee and the pyramid because they were basically one right at that time um that that had there's a huge impact there um water being drawn as a natural resource just for human consumption um and then the, the opposite of not only did we take, but what we put in, right? Um, the effect of the, the, the sawmills, yeah. The effect of sewage being dumped in. You know, I read things in, in, about diversions in the late eighteen hundreds, where the river was so diverted upstream that sometimes in the dry months it would go completely dry. Yet they're still dumping sewage in dry riverbed and would wait for a fall winter event or a fall, uh, um, you know, precip- precipitation event or flooding. Sure. So I mean, you think of all that. And you're kind of like, wow, that's that's a lot. That's huge changes. They're, they're, they're removing the wildlife. They're they're taking the water away, putting other crap in. Right. You know. So and it's like now you look at the trucky today, and you're like, well, I, that that happened. You know, or what's what's going on now? Right. You know, or you know, they just look at it in its state now and think that's the state it's always been in. Right. And as I've learned from the readings, of course, but most importantly, as I've learned from you over the years, right. the state that it was in, not really that long ago was bad like it was right. awful okay. awful yeah, maybe, yeah maybe maybe you can speak to that yeah, what, what did it take to get it back to what it is now where we're here and like why this area yeah yeah it like. seems to be running its natural course nico and i um this week we were fly fishing a little further down the river and we were in what we could see we thought was a natural part of the riverbed a mm-hmm. turn and you know reading the history of the river it's just it's, um, you know, I felt sad hearing about what has happened to it and what it's taken to get it back to what it is today. Sure. Yeah, I think I think one of the things that's most striking about the Truckee River is, is that 
I think there's a vast majority of people who don't really know what we lost on the Truckee River. Um, sure, people know that you know we have uh, endemic and endangered fish in the Truckee River with the Kiwi and Lahontan cutthroat trout, and that they used to run in in, in just tremendous numbers on the Truckee River. The, the, the spawning runs of, of Lahontan cutthroat trout. I mean, if we could see those today, I think people would their their jaws would hit the floor. It was an amazingly um, productive ecosystem, and it was just overexploited to such an extent that the the fish went extinct in the river, um, and and all of that productivity was gone. Um, and where we come at the at the Truckee River, we have to sort of you know create objectives. What what are we what are we trying to re- reclaim what are we trying to bring back and and how do we measure success and how do we um you know how do we just organize our work you know we have to have goals and objectives and so what we've looked at for the Truckee River is um you know migratory birds um on the Truckee River we have some good data on that um historically in, in the in like 1868, there was a um, uh, a USGS expedition with an ornithologist named Ridgeway who came through um, the Truckee Meadows. Uh, he, he, he transited the Truckee River from roughly around Wadsworth uh, all the way through to Truckee uh, on this survey of the 38th parallel uh, of the United States. The U.S. Geological Survey was in it, and so that's some of the earliest you know good scientific data we have on it. And in a period of about three days, this, this ornithologist Ridgeway, who I think was like a teenager when he did this, he was very young, hmm. kind of a prodigy, came through and, and he described the Truckee River as this, this, this thickly choked with willows. You could barely get to the banks of it. They had a little boat that they sailed up and down the river on. Um, uh, and then he described just, you know, hundreds of species of birds in a period of three days. Uh, and, um, you know, talked about how it was, you know, cottonwoods and willows and these meadows. And it was just this green, you know, lush area. Um, and described a lot of birds. By the 70s, a couple of professors from UNR over a period of, I can't remember exactly how many years, it was multi-year effort, um, described, you know, something like 70% of those species of birds. Um, the numbers of them were much lower. It took them, you know, it took them a number of years and a number of seasons to get to 70% of what was obviously visible in one three-day stretch of 1868. So, And that was tucked away in the chronology. Yeah. Like a little spot I came across it. It was mm-hmm. super small. It was just like, hey, in this time frame, like what you're speaking of, there was, you know, the hundreds yeah. And then the 70s, they came down, I think it was in the 40s. Like, there was like 40, 42, or it was a really low number compared to the original. And they're like, well, like, why? You know, right. what happened? And, well, exactly. And, and what happened was that all of these years and years of diversions, withdrawals, over-exploitation of the aquatic resources, um, you know, led to... to water being withdrawn from the river and not being available for the, the, the native plants uh, and the ecosystems alongside the river at the key times of the year when they need to be there. So I think it's a, 
it's a good idea to discuss what, you know, what, what was the habitat on the Truckee River and, and it's, you know, cottonwood gallery forests, it's, it's native uh, riparian vegetation that's, that's native to, you know, the western United States. It's dominated by, you know, Fremont cottonwood and a variety of species of willows. And those are all dependent upon sort of natural river function, flooding, um, floodplain inundation, sediment transport, all of that stuff is very, very important to sort of keep the cycle of these ecosystems going. They, they're, they're dependent upon the disturbance of flooding and high water, you know, periodically having high water, you know, we have a spring runoff that, that creates big flows, it moves sediment around, sort of um, creates a naturally braided channel in some areas, it makes the, the river channel meander across the floodplain uh, over time and uh, those withdrawals and, and the way the water was managed kind of <clears throat> interrupted that that natural process on the river and sort of creates this this um, now we don't have the sediment transport and flooding which is key for the the, the riparian vegetation so we get a decrease in it um, and then one of the things that really kind of put put a nail in the coffin was in, the, in 1950, there was a really big flood on the Truckee River, um, you know, flooded all of downtown Reno. There's historical photos of this. Um, you know, the army was called out to rescue people. Basically, the, the entirety of the Truckee Meadows was underwater. Uh, and it's kind of analogous to the more recent flood in 1997 on the Truckee River. Um, so, but that happened in 1950. It was possibly even larger than the 97 flood. Um, and it, and it, it, it created a lot of, uh, um, flood damage and economic impact in the, in the Truckee Meadows. And so it, it, it kind of spurred a period of, um, flood projects. People were looking at preventing flooding. Um, and we do focusing that differently on the now. Economy. Yes. Focusing on the economy and, and thinking about flooding in, in a, in a way that they did in 1950. I mean, people think about it differently, and, and we have partners who, who are involved in flood protection, and, and, and you know, we have partners uh, in the Bureau of Reclamation and, and other agencies who don't think the way that it was, things were thought about in the 50s. So in the 50s, you know, the ideas were, you know, let's, let's, let's channelize the river, let's straighten it out, let's do a big engineering project on the river, because it'll keep... The economic interest in the in the Truckee Meadows from having these catastrophic floods, um, right. and so in this period in 1950, I think it was in 1954, there was another big flood on the Truckee River, um, and then in in 1963, when they were implementing their flood project, and they actually had equipment in the river down near Wadsworth, they had another big flood uh, happen while that stuff was happening. Uh, you know, actively moving things around with bulldozers, putting levees on the river, straightening it. And they created catastrophic incision on the lower port of the river, uh, down, you know, downstream from Derby Dam. And all that just served to further disconnect the floodplain and the riparian ecosystems from the river. Now, you know, the, the river is, is rushing through there and scouring the bed of the river and kind of lowering the water table throughout this whole lower river section. And that, you know, that just exacerbates the conditions that were already happening because of 
withdrawals for, for agricultural and municipal water that were timed without, without even, you know, understanding the, the ecosystems that, that needed that. And so that kind of really, really destroyed habitat on the lower river. And, and, and those bird species that I was talking about earlier, they were just, they didn't have anywhere to hang out. There were, there was nowhere for them to do their thing. Um, well, and then looking at the historical data, just like you mentioned that, that flood, is it 63, 64? Mm-hmm. And the, the flows, it says here the flows, Virginia Street Bridge in downtown. Are you ready for this, Ben? 18,400 CFS. Yeah. I mean, in our recent, quote unquote, high water flood years, I mean, we're, we're, we're upset if the river's at, you know, 4,500 to six, 7,000. I mean, that's big. That's a big river for here. I was river surf. I learned to river surf last spring, uh-huh. mm-hmm. and the water flow was, uh, I think, forty eight hundred. Right. And that weekend, there was, I think, three people who had died, mm-hmm. and somebody who had died the weekend before. So that's just at forty eight hundred. Yes. So I can't imagine eighteen thousand. And that's not even as big as the ninety seven or the nineteen fifty flood. The nineteen fifty flood. I don't know what they officially recorded that as, but but there's some talk that it was probably bigger than the flood in '97, and I think the '97 flood was twenty-one to twenty-three thousand cubic feet per second. And wow. as a as an example, that the average flow in the Truckee River is probably three to five hundred cubic feet per second. That's if you go down to the Truckee River, most of the time that's somewhere in that range. That's a magic number. That's that's kind of <laughs> yeah. where it's flowing. Yeah. Um, and then in like, uh, I think in 2014, it was, I think we had 26 CFS down on the lower river in the extreme droughty, you know, conditions. So that's quite a variation. Um, but, it, you know, in an annual variation, you know, you would see, you should see these low flows throughout most of the year and then these really big peaks in the spring. And that big peak in the spring move soil around and makes the channel move and that that's what makes uh cottonwoods and willows they love that that's what they need disturbance they get they get a new point bar forming a new sandbar forming some scour happening over here and it moves things around and then you get you get a new flush of vegetation and when a river's managed for agriculture or economic purposes they're kind of in the past, they would leave that stuff off the table. They're like, eh, no, no. It's like, okay, when can we start the withdrawing water? Let's just start withdrawing it. We're not even thinking about, you know, trees and fish and, and, and all that other stuff. Um, so before we could do our work, one of the key things that had to happen is, is, is that we needed to restore environmental flows to the Truckee River. And so you can, you can thank the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe for, for restoring environmental flows to the river. Um, they pushed to get that um, done, to get the Truckee River Management Agreement. I can't remember exactly what, what the agreement's called. Um, you know, I'm sure it's in that, in that document, uh, which they just finally implemented a couple years back. Um, the, the, the most up-to-date um, management agreement for water in the Truckee River. But what that does is it leaves environmental flows in, in the river. There's always... A consideration for seasonal flows and, and minimum flows for fish and um, and plants. You know the the streamside vegetation has a requirement for flows in the spring. So 
cottonwoods and willows <clears throat> in the spring, the trees, you know, produce that cottonwood fluff and it's only viable for a couple of weeks and there need to be, you know, wet, muddy flats where those seeds can fall on and, and the seed can germinate. And then the rate at which the water recedes needs to be slow and steady because in the past, what would happen is there'd be a flood and the water would be, would be, you know, creating these new surfaces and cottonwood fluff would fall on it and, and rushes and sedges would, would, would get their seed onto these new surfaces. But then they would be like, all right, open the ditches and the river level would drop, you know, a foot in a day or two feet in a day or some, you know, very rapid decline. And it would just leave all those seeds high and dry. So now it has to happen in a measured way so that those plants can grow roots to keep up with it. And, and with like cottonwoods, for example, there's, a, there's a, a rate of recession that they can handle. And it's something like an inch a day. So if the water level gets lower by an inch every day, they can keep up growing roots in those little seedlings. Um, and so with that uh, environmental flows... Um, is there a wreck on the freeway? Because I'm seeing a lot of cars go by. <laughs> I just saw six cars go by. Um, yeah, we'll find out later on. We'll find out we'll get through. Um, real, real quick, since we're at a break, you mentioned that document, and I just wanted to say that this is the Truckee River Chronology, and it's on the Division of Water Planning's uh, website that you directed us to. Yeah, yeah. That's a great document. Um it's just, you know, it's just bullet points with, with year by year what happened, you know, of note, um, legally, socially, whatever, on the Truckee River. kind of tells you. Uh, it reads like a drama. It does. It really it does. does. I mean, yeah. even with, with bullet points of facts, you're going through it, and you're, at each bullet point, you're getting emotional, and then you'll have just a bunch of consecutive lows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, the, but then it's funny, you'll see interjections of, 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 of an agency or somebody an individual or, or like the tribe mm-hmm. or or some type of resource going hey this needs to stop yeah, yeah. you know a, a, law, yeah. a law being put into place and and one example um was uh, and this was i believe in late 1800s it led up in the early 1900s was sawmill up around floriston up mm-hmm. in that area between floriston and farad um it's on the california side the pollution on the Nevada side was bad. The Nevada state legislature said, hey, no more of this. You know, no more dumping of sawdust or, or whatever. But that that was, in effect, on our side. Mm-hmm. But upstream, they, step, they, they kept sending the stuff down. And they said going. there's a period of like 30 years where it was just a, 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 a dark, mucky, bubbly mess downtown. You know, coagulated sawdust, right. dark stuff, just like liquid oh, death. Yeah, just all of that, all of those nutrients going into the river, and then you get like these, this just change in the chemistry of the water, and right. everything stinks. And, and mm. you could still, we were talking about that earlier, you could still see physical evidence of that. We were talking to, a, I believe, a city planner um, at the Hive, a, bu- a new business center in town that overlooks Wingfield Park. Uh-huh. And he was mentioning that all of the buildings that were built at that time period are facing away from the river. They didn't want to look at it. They didn't want to, you know, it was no. just kind of a stain on the area. Yeah. And so... Like a complete disengagement <clears throat> Yes. of the community from the river. Right. Through, I, through architecture. It's like, I you, mean, totally guiding yeah. people away from it. It's like, wow, like, 
I know. Like Ben and I can't fathom that. I'm sure you can't fathom it. It's like a river nowadays. Anything waterfront facing the water, flowing water, yeah, yeah. big deal. Patios. People are, you know, they want to be able to go out and, and sit on their patio if there's an apartment building and look down at the river and see it and see the trees right. and the birds and the ducks yeah. and all that stuff. I mean, yeah. there's still buildings where the whole part of the building that faces the river is completely covered in brick. It's like like, like uh, from Virginia Street going upstream on right. on the right. You know, on the on the on the north bank of the river, heading upstream, there's that whole section of buildings between Virginia and um, is it Arlington? Right around there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on the right hand side, that there's just a blank wall. Yes. Straight to the not a, not a window on it. And yeah. yeah, yeah. If you think, I mean, and, and I never even thought about that until you brought that up. I'm like, I never thought about it either until uh, he brought it up. And the other thing that you, you probably are aware of is the intentional planting of trees. That are non-indigenous, right? Mm-hmm. So they're they're planting the, the pines, right, to block the view instead of like having cottonwoods, where because the cottonwood, you know, will, will, you know, if, if you're positioned right, will block the view of the river because sure. they're full, you know. But however, in the fall, in the winter, that right. goes away, and you can see right through. So yeah. they picked evergreens mm-hmm. that constantly block, you know, that, and, right. and we see, and we saw a few st- remaining stands of those, you know, from those times, you know, like. You know, and there was discussion by that gentleman we talked to. He was like, hey, no, I, I, I want to get that piece of land. I want to cut those down. And I want to put cottonwoods up there. Sure. And it's like, well, yeah, great. You know, he's all, because people aren't seeing, they're not getting the real view right. of the real river. You know? Right, right. So. so, yeah, how do you guys manage that balance of where, you know, we all work, we all have, you know, we eat, our livelihood's important. We don't want to sacrifice the economy, but yet... The heart of this city is the Truckee River. How do you bring those two uh, together? You know, I, I think the best way that I can describe how, how we work is, I mean, honestly, our, I mean, our goals are to restore um, and, and, you know, preserve these, these places, these ecosystems, uh, these sections of the river because they provide so many beneficial things for the community um, as well as nature. I mean, we, we don't live outside of nature. We live in nature. Nature is, is responsible for the soil, the air, the water, everything around us. We can't separate ourselves from it. We have to, um, you know, be a part of it. I mean, we're not, in some areas, we're, we'll take a piece of property and we kind of, you know, we want to keep the management of that and, and keep things away from it that are going to degrade it. But ultimately, our goal is to make people care about those those um, those places and engage with them. Um, you know, we work a lot in working landscapes throughout the state. You know, grazing lands and things like that. People have to have an interest in that ground. You can't just be like, oh. We're going to preserve it and you can't come and see it and you can't be a part of it. Um, that doesn't work. People have to be engaged with it. And, they, and you have to, if they're not engaged with it, you have to, you know, bring bring it to them and show them how it matters to them and makes their community vibrant. You know, we were talking a little before we started this about how, you know, the, you thought of the river as like an artery for, for, for Reno. Uh, in the Truckee Meadows, and, and to be honest, I mean, the, the, the town wouldn't be here without the river. Nobody would have settled the, the region. If there wasn't a river there, 
to you know um, promote agriculture in in an era where everything was horsepower, literally horses. You know, if if you can't, you know, if you can't grow it, if you can't grow forage for animals, and you can't um, have that economic basis that's based on the water and the ecosystem that the river provides, you you know, you can't even be here. So Reno wouldn't be a town without the river. It just wouldn't happen. Right, and that's what we say is like the flow of the river is synonymous with with why well, like the business environment with the community the health of the community mm-hmm. um you know and and just you know it's kind of a marker of of the times i mean right. literally walking down to the shoreline of the river downtown you can see like you, you can get a feel for the town mm-hmm. even if you didn't live here like okay let's let's see what's going on look around and be like okay that's where we're at you know yeah. and it's fascinating and, and and what you've done down here and it will turn a corner a little bit um, and kind of hit on a little bit of the, the fly fishing aspect it, aspect of it with the McCarran Ranch, how it, it's blossomed from bringing the, rib, the river back to its natural form in this area mm-hmm. has also developed essentially a, a blue ribbon fishery of just epic proportion. And, and not like this, hey, I can stick anything in the water and pull something out. It's not quite like that. But the habitat that has been developed mainly feels like at your hand has provided an, an ep- just an epic fishery with, um, it's just a reflection of the health, gauge of the health of this section of the river. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that, you know. But I know that wasn't the strict intention of McCarran Ranch. Like, hey, let's make a great fishery. It's a byproduct of it, you know. But yeah. in, in your experience, I mean, like, when you see something like that, is, is that is that, a, is that a gauge? Is that tangible data that you use? You're like, hey, we're... We, we have this great fishery now because that's reflective of, well, these fish have to eat this, you know, and this animal eats this, you know, and it backs itself all the way out to, you know, what you're talking about, such out all the way up to the cottonwoods, you know, and right. rising and, you know, dropping water levels, how that's all intertwined. It is. It's all intertwined. And, you know, we don't make, you know, our goals based on 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 the fisheries end of it and, and the in-stream habitat being like the concrete goal that we we call out and use as a marker and track for the river because because honestly they're they're that's in the hands of other partners so like restoration of some of these these fishes belong with um the fish and wildlife service uh the nevada division of wildlife um but where we can impact it is is we can help the the business community by building our project our projects and and improving water quality through nutrient uptake from you know, the streamside vegetation that, that we're restoring to these reaches of the river. So we're benefiting the cities of Reno and Sparks and everyone who uses the water treatment facility and the water treatment facility. I mean, they're going to add to, you know, dissolved nutrient load in the river. And so our projects are helping out in that regard. We're, we're creating places where we've reconnected the floodplain that are improving um, flood attenuation so that, you know, future um, flood control projects within, you know, the Truckee Meadows where the river's already completely channelized and everything's built right up to it. They can do work there and send some of those flows along. And we've got, we've got properties downstream that can receive those flows, soak up that water, restore, you know, the, 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 um, the, the flows underneath the floodplain down here. I don't want to use too many technical terms on it. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, floodplains 
act like sponges and soak up a lot of water during flooding events and, and help with the shallow groundwater in that vicinity, which can then benefit that vegetation through time. So um, in the year, and, and you know, that's something that's been demonstrated, you know, rivers in California and all over the United States, when you have a functioning floodplain, you really do have a, a significant impact on groundwater recharge um, in, in those aquifers that are tied to those rivers. Um, and so, you know, we're helping out with all that stuff. I think I lost the. <laughs> I think I lost my direction a little bit here because there's so much to talk about. Well, no, we've I done mean, we've done so much work down here. Yeah. And any way you point, you can almost you can just go. Well, how does your project help me? And you can just go. Well, what do you like to do? You know, this one thing or this other thing, and we can show you where how we made it better for everyone in the community down here. So, like when we started on these projects and and. You know, most of this was private property down here. Um, some of it had been turned over to um, one of our partner agencies, the BLM, who owns a lot of lands that we've worked on on the lower river. Um, but it wasn't a place where anybody would want to go because it was just wrecked, you know. And so there wasn't a lot of native vegetation. There were a lot of invasive weeds and the river channel was, was straightened and it had a completely unnatural profile beneath the, you know, the water level, it was, there was no structure for fish, um, in there. And so through our work, even though our goals are, are the riparian vegetation adjacent to the river, we're, we're creating new river channels that have structure in it for fish and all these other things. We don't tie our goals to those fish because other agencies, that's really their, their purview, but we've created a, uh, situation where their work can just go right on top of that. And we've created these these spots where we know, like during those drought years, we've created spots where fish do way better in, in these um, low water drought sections uh, uh, years. So we've got better habitat and the fish can make it through that drought a lot better than in other stretches of the river. So. And then uh, speaking of fish, one of the things in the um, chronology of the Truckee River that we just <clears throat> blew me away, and we were all talking about it earlier. Nico was the one who brought it up to me. It's just the amount of fish that was being used to supply San Francisco in the late 1800s, how mm-hmm. the, the fish became a delicacy. Could you tell us a little bit about, you know, that quantity of fish that came out of there, and then, you know, if you foresee us ever getting to that again down the in the future? You know, I'm actually... That is not my, my realm of expertise, but in talking with our partners with the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and Division of Wildlife, you know, biologists, fisheries biologists from both of those agencies, there are some exciting stuff coming down the road. I, I don't know exactly uh, time frames on it, but I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm optimistic that we can, we can see spawning fish back in the Truckee River, you know, certainly within my lifetime. I, I don't want to put a number on it because right. I, I really don't know where that's going, but I know that they've been doing telemetry work uh, and they're geared up to try and get, you know, Kiwi and LCT back in the river and and able to get up and down the river without getting stuck behind obstacles. Um, right. And I, we've helped with that some. Some of the diversion, the, the ag diversions on these, these old ag lands on the lower river, we've modified those diversions uh, 
in our projects because none of those water rights exist for any of those properties. So the diversions are basically defunct. And so when we did our projects, we would pull those out and um, allowing fish passage, you know, more free uh, to happen more freely. Um, I know there's a project to implement the fish passage on Derby Dam. Mm-hmm. And then when that happens and then, and then some, some measures to keep uh, Kiwi from getting into the, um, the, the, Chucky Canal, so that they don't have, you know, endangered species issues going, you know, down the canal. They're going to try and work on that, and then we can have those two fish, which are kind of the, the keystone fish in the, or, well, I don't know that they're the keystone fish, but they're two big, big fish that if we could get them restored to the Chucky, that would be amazing. Will we get back to that, that pre-18... I think it was like 260,000 pounds of fish yeah. coming out. At Wadsworth, there was, a, there was a siding on the railroad, the Transcontinental Railroad in Wadsworth. I think it was in 1868. I think that's the date. They had a commercial fishery on the Truckee River. I don't know how they did it. They probably threw a net in the river and had a mule on either side of the river. <laughs> and they just dragged a big net down the river and they pulled out spawning Lahontan cutthroat trout and put them on ice and ship them east to the railhead in Ogden, Utah, and west to um, San Francisco to feed people. I know they fed a lot of people up at the Comstock and in Reno out of the river. Not just LCT, the Kiwi. Apparently, we're very tasty fish. Um, and, you know, it was an incredible amount of productivity in the river. I don't, I don't know enough about the, the um, underlying quish, uh, conditions required for that kind of productivity now. But, I mean, if we have flows and we don't have barriers to passage, I don't see why, we, you know, we couldn't help bring it back. Well, I mean, you know, what's fascinating, Chris, is like looking at this restored section of the river. It's like just looking at it and imagining that. Mm-hmm. Going at one point, this is what very close or if not identical to maybe what the river looked like here a long time ago during that time and like that yeah. that quantity and that size and that volume moving up and down this river like mm-hmm. right here in front of us you know that, yeah, would, that, that would it's just, just it's like like how like it's almost hard to, to fathom you're like really like come on no way you know yeah. but it was rich enough you know to, to, to handle that it's just incredible like you said yeah and you know we're doing work up at Independence Lake with with um USGS and um, California uh, Department of Wildlife, because um, they're spawning Lahontan cutthroat trout at Independence Lake, so they, they spawn into Independence Creek on the west end of the lake. And so, you know, there's there's a, an effort there to sort of... Um, you know, okay. yeah. we'll, take, we'll take we'll take a train break and come back here. <laughs> it's it's recording. Yeah, yeah, we're train, back. <laughs> train's gone. Another piece of wood on the fire. Throwing another piece of wood in there, keeping us warm. Nice. So. Now we're back from the, the train break. We're relatively close to the train tracks here. Let me say relatively. What is that? Like um, 50 yards? Maybe. 30? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so um, so to back up like on your river restoration, you told me this story one time. 
uh, about some fish that you essentially had to manually relocate. Mm-hmm. And I always like to tell people that the Truckee River has this propensity to grow just monster or bear-sized fish, yeah. right? And I just, if you, if you can go into it, kind of explain what you're doing, the circumstance, it's, I love it. It's awesome. Sure. Yeah. So, and th- this is, you know, a great segue into, you know, how, how have we um, restored these reaches of the river down here? So, you know, way back at the beginning of the podcast, talked about buying McCarran Ranch. So, you know, we wanted to do this river restoration work on the lower Truckee River. We want to, we wanted to reverse the channelization and, you know, um, desertification of the river uh, is probably as good a term as you can think. So basically we have the river sunk down into the floodplain so low that it you know, in a moderate flood, it can't get up onto the floodplain, which is when all the magic happens for a river ecosystem. Um, so we want to, you know, reconnect the floodplain. And that, you know, is kind of the term that best describes all, almost all of the work that we've done down here. And we use a bunch of different techniques to reconnect the floodplain in these, in these property areas. So at uh, uh, McCarran Ranch, uh, where we started and sort of proved the, the, the concept back in 2003, we did a pilot project and we didn't, we didn't build new channel, but we put structures in the channel. We put riffles, um, you know, rock in the river, um, to help, uh, Raise man- it. yeah, to help manipulate the water surface elevation. So, so if we put rock in the river, we can kind of make, make it, a condition to where we know at what flow it's going to flood over bank. And so that in a nutshell is one technique. So riffles. And then another technique is to build a new design channel, um, dig it out and engineer it so that we have, again, a known water surface elevation during certain flow regimes, which can then, you know, give us a flooded surface so that we know we're going to be able to grow our, our, um, riparian vegetation or streamside uh, native vegetation. So at, at Mustang at, at Mustang Ranch and McCarran Ranch and 102 Ranch and Tracy Phase 1 projects, we all we dug a, a new design channel on all these projects. So we dig a channel and then divert the river into it at the end of the project. And then often what we would do is we would take that, that straightened section of channel and, and kind of fill that in um, with some of the, the spoils from digging the, the new channel. Um, and uh, that leads us to the, the story on the Tracy project back in 2013. We dug a new design channel and got all that work done and stockpiled a bunch of material. Um, and we turned the river over into the new channel. And that generally happens in the November, December time frame. And then we, we just fill in the old channel so that in high flows, we're not going to recapture the, the original channel. So you have this, if you imagine you have this straight trench of the old river. And that and was man-made. That right? was, yeah, that was kind of man-made, augmented, over-deepened, over-widened, very no features on the bottom. So we're filling that old thing back in. Right, right. Well, it's full of water when this is happening. It's blocked at the top end, but it's full of 
water, you know, it's open to the river from the downstream end. Um, and we have turbidity curtains and all of these, these measures in place to make sure that we're not um, burping a bunch of sediment into the river. Because, I mean, we have, um, uh, we have permits and they have a, a permitted amount of turbidity in the river. Uh, so we have a turbidity curtain at the downstream end and we're filling this in. And when we get towards the, the turbidity curtains basically open to the river, it's, it's stopping the sediment from getting in and mixing with the clean water, but it's, it's completely passable to fish. So it's open, it's not blocked off, we're not trapping fish in there while we're filling the channel in from the top all the way down to the bottom. When we get to the last little bit, we kind of have to fill it in and create a space uh, in the end where now we have the potential to trap some fish. It's very turbid. It's been open the whole time. We're hoping that as many of those fish as swam out as possible. Um, but, you know, we have to maintain our permit for water quality. So at the last bit, we seal that off, and then we, we have to net the fish out of this last little pond. Um, and, it, you know, there's two inches of ice on it. It's late December. It's pretty muddy. It does not look like there's a lot of fish. There's some carp in there and this and that. I've seen that happen. This time, it is full of trout, and I'm, I'm just baffled that they didn't find their way up, but they didn't. So we got nets and we're pulling them out of there. And I'm taking rainbows and browns. And they're vigorous enough to where, you know, they're not happy. It's pretty turbid water, but I'm going to put them back in their mainstream. And I'm picking these fish up and I'm having to use both arms and kind of <laughs> hug them, bear hug them. I'm wearing waders, you know, and I'm getting them in the river and they're just, they're just thrashing. And so... They're big fish in well, the truck here, and, and lots of them. And paint a picture because, you know, <laughs> we're on a podcast, we can't be seen. Chris is, and you're not a small guy. I mean, how tall are you? You're, what? 6'4". You're 6'4", yeah. so you're, you know, double arming. Yeah, yeah. No, these know, fish I mean, are that's, that's, not, they're, they're, you know, and obviously, so I'm, I'm netting them. Some of them are big enough to wear a net's not not the best, you know, and there's a lot of them, and I'm like, oh, my God, we need to get these out of here, you know, and, and so... You know, I'm at, at one point I'm just grabbing fish and kind of bear hugging them because you know how else are you going to pick up a fish? Yeah. Right. I'm not going to you know grab it by the gills or something like that. Right. And uh, it, it to me it was it was just like a, one I would have imagined these fish would have swam out of here and they had a free passage, but they're still in here. But I was I was just kind of stunned by the amount of fish in a section of river that nobody fishes. They, they can fish it now. I still don't think a lot of people fish that section of river. Uh, no. They're just like, nah, there's no fish in there. There's fish in there. There's a lot of fish in there. Um, I'm pretty sure there were mountain white fish down there. Um, there were all kinds. Uh, and, uh, you know, we netted them and got back into the channel. And, uh, you know, most of the time when I've got a situation where it's like, it's usually invasive fish. Like, you know, we're filling in an area that was ponded. Like we did work down at 102 Ranch and there's an old gravel pit that got filled in right. or, or the, the river evulsed into it in the 97 flood. Mm -hmm. And so we created some fill areas where we put a lot of the fill from where we dug out a new channel. And these areas <clears throat> were full of, um, you know, common carp. Uh, and I've seen lots of common carp, but I mean, and that's invasive, big. that's an invasive. Yeah. And, and so not so worried about it, but you know, that this section of the river was, yeah, it was just indicative of how many big fish there are. And, you know, you can come down to McCarran Ranch if if you know folks at, uh, at Endow. 
Division of Wildlife, they do their electrofishing surveys down here. And, and I've seen some rainbows, wild rainbows in the river that are just, you know, they're just pigs down here. They're big fish. Yeah, we're actually, yeah. We're, we're due for that. Cause they, we're doing that on the tail end of summer and they usually, Travis over there usually comes yeah. out with his report around this time of year and broadcasts it. But last time we saw him was about a month ago and, um, you know, he was, he was, Slammed. He was slammed. I mean, he was working away on that thing then, you know, and I just said, hey, what can you tell me? And he's like, you know, pretty much mom is the word. I'm like, well, good or bad. He put thumbs up. He's like, no, it's real good. It's continuously getting better. And even through this section, you know, mm-hmm. and even surprising sections like downtown was doing really well just because of just, wow. <laughs> Sometimes you might question it going, why is it doing so good? But, you know, the, the nutrient levels are so high. The food is abundant. Fish, you know, the shelter's abundant. And and if you look at that environment there, you, you dig down, you look at that natural environment under the water, that's what you find here. You got that old riverbed there. Some sections it feels untainted still. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's been replicated here. You know, you know one one of the things down here, like so, you know, in a new design channel, we we obviously we, we have a designer, we have a we have a civil engineer, we have a um, a Fluvial geomorphologist who's doing the design, the consultant uh, for us. Um, one of the consultants that that uh, we used recently. Um, you know, these guys are are just you know, they're great rivermen. They they they're just passionate about rivers. One of the great things about so the designs that we've done, like on these projects, is we build a new channel, and we have these riffles that are have, have an elevation that we know, so we can track water surface elevation we can model how the river is going to um, function in various flood regimes but one of the great things is that we've left in the opportunity for natural channel complexity to establish so the flow it's it's not all just locked in with rock and like just bomb proof you know it's it's native materials the riffles are are hard hardened and armored, but not so much that over time that the river can't take on its natural function. We kind of put sideborns on these reaches with grade controls so that we we don't get um, unintentional scour. We put we put a lot of riprap in in areas where we know we don't want the river to move, um, and so we, we we kind of put you know limiters on things. We put rails on the on the on each project, but within that system, it can be as dynamic as it needs to be in order to have a natural channel structure, um, <clears throat> a natural bed uh, composition of materials, um, you know, a, a natural sort of pool run riffle sequence through the section, um, and a sinuosity that's appropriate for you know the constraints of the river because it is managed. So we can't overcome how they manage the river, right. but we can work within that to make it as natural as possible. And that's you know, one thing you, know, you pointed about, like the riffraff and stuff like that. It was about well, maybe it was two years ago we did a little float tour down the river, and you're pointing out where there's one section over by Mustang where it makes kind of a bend, and you're like, hey, last year all this. You know, all these rocks and sediment were deposited here, but the high flows did. And then he also looked at the opposite bank of the river and he made mention of, like, hey, you see those cottonwoods, you know, out there, uh, you know, 
they might have been 200 feet from the shore. Mm-hmm. He, he made note of all the cottonwoods that were in front of them coming to the shoreline. Now, hey, that was brand new. Those weren't here last year. You know, and they're about this tall. Oh, yeah. So they've naturally, like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, they naturally settled. Like the river did its high high water event, came raging through there, just, you know. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's doing exactly what it sounds like it's planned to do, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and doing it naturally. But, you know, he kind of gave it a... a, a you know, a direction to go, you know, and say, hey, this is what you, you need to do. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's kind of blown up, really. Like, it's doing oh, really well. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I plant a lot of trees over the years, I've planted a lot of trees down here. We've used a lot of volunteer effort, <laughs> um, a lot of crews to to plant trees. And when we salvage trees, there's big uh, excavators and, and, you know, dig deep holes and plant them in spots to sort of kickstart um, uh these plant communities, but you can't, you mean, you can't match the river when it floods, creates a point bar, and then the water gently recedes and the seeds fall, and you'll create this just thicket of, of cottonwood trees and willows. And, you know, I, it, it would take me a lot of money to replicate that. But if we set up the conditions to where the river can keep doing that over time, that's really the goal. It's not going to be restoration for us if we have to keep intervening. Right. It's like a park at that point. You know, it's a highly right. managed ecosystem. We're trying to, we're not going to be able to walk away from these things 100% for a lot of reasons, but we're we're not going to have to come down here and plant a ton of trees all the time um, because we've got that cycle sort of uh, functioning. And we've, re- we've restored the conditions and the process. So we're restoring the process. We've allowed the river to flood. We've restored that sediment transport and and uh, and inundation process, right? To the extent that we can, and so in doing that, and having that be as dynamic and natural as possible, and it allows all this other stuff to fall out. Like like if if I tried to go in particularly and go, I'm going to make fish habitat at the bottom of the river here. I'm not going to be as good as the river is going to be if I just create the conditions for the river to kind of sort that thing out by itself you know and, and yeah not to get too far off on a tangent but you know like for me growing up being a surfer and we talk about a lot how there's a similarity between surfing fly fishing the commonality i think is when you're in the water you feel an energy you know mm-hmm. you might not notice it right away but you start to recognize it and that's the same that nico and i talk about a lot when we're um, in the Truckee River or around it, it's got a life of its own. So for you guys, it sounds to me like you're not trying to manicure it. You're actually just building the habitat so that life could continue and, and thrive. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the key things that I've gone into from the beginning, um, you know, in my previous work, I used to work in Las Vegas. <clears throat> doing ecological restoration at the Springs Preserve. And, 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 you know, one of the key tenets of doing ecological restoration work is, is that you're, you're, you have to restore a process. If you want to see a forest somewhere and you're trying to restore a forest, it's not just about planting trees. (coughs) It's about soil processes and, um, you know, uh, uh, hydrology and all those other things and if you leave any of that stuff out um, and you don't restore you don't you haven't 
got a restored process on one of those things. It's ultimately, it's it's just a landscaping project, you know. So definitely, it's. Uh, I'm gonna grab a drink of water. So. Yeah, no problem. No problem. We'll circle back around here. All right, so let's talk about that. That smoking of the of the white fish. We're already we're already enveloped in the smell of smoke from this potbelly stove, and it's awesome. It feels like we're in a camping environment, but. Uh, yeah. It's making me hungry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so for, for me, um, you know, fit, I, and I grew up fishing and, and I grew up in New Mexico. Um, you know, I was born in Minnesota and, and sort of fishing and fish and smoked fish is a big part of the culture. Um, my mother's Danish. And when we were in Denmark two years ago with relatives, you know, we would, we would eat these, these long, long meals with all kinds of little snacks and you know smoked eel and smoked fish and, and all this stuff is it's like uh you know i have this this cultural connection to it um and for me fishing growing up it was always about you know taking some home and eating them yeah um and i don't fish a whole lot anymore um i get enough river time uh, I don't need, right. I don't need to, uh, yeah. you know, go, right. <laughs> uh, go fishing. Um, you know, and I've done a little bit of it down here, but one of the things I really wanted to do is, 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 you know, catch some, you know, actually target some mountain white fish, uh, and just smoke, you know, smoke some fish and, you know, make some fish dip and just have some smoked fish around. And, you know, it's the whole process of it. I'm never going to have a ton of it. I'm not going to have lots of it. I'm going to you know, catch, you know, 10 or 15 fish over the course of a year and smoke them and that'll be it. And, and, and even it's the process and right setting up to do it. And it's just a connection to your food. Um, and, you know, you guys have mentioned before, and I'm just going to segue right into the, the, the burrito thing that you guys are like, what's your favorite burrito? And it's like, <laughs> there you it's go. not a burrito Perfect. that you can get in town. All right. You can't buy this burrito. Well, it's more intriguing than <laughs> You cannot buy this burrito, and I've had this burrito growing up quite a bit. So we grew up in New Mexico, and hunting is is, is very big culture in New Mexico, and so are green chilies. And it's so, still, it's so, the land of enchantment. Yes, indeed. This and is so, already tasty. Keep going. So <laughs> the last time I had one of these burritos, we were in Wyoming antelope hunting, and one of... Uh, my dad's uh, friends from New Mexico, I cannot remember the, uh, who exactly it was, but we're sort of in camp and I smell, I smell elk meat and green chilies and they were, they were just like onions, elk meat, green chilies on a campfire and then you stuff that in a, a, a flour tortilla that you've, you know, heated up in a griddle wow. and you know what? What's in that? What's in that mix? I mean, it's elk, mm-hmm. which has a distinctive smell. It's fried, and I think it was fried in corn oil because that's what everybody used. Uh, with green chilies and onions and a little garlic powder, and I mean, that is the maybe you burrito. should think about opening up a burrito stand out here because I, I know can't. there's no food by here. Nobody's getting any of that elk from me. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's, I could, it's not happening. <laughs> yeah, both. You have a both. You have that that intrinsic simplicity that's synonymous with that 
that great burrito. Mm -hmm. You know, but you also have that complexity where you just kind of even dove into it without even knowing it, saying, hey, look, you know, you have the elk, but you know how elk is. And then, but then it's in, it's, it's fried in, in corn oil. And then you have the chilies that are made their own way. Right. Then you have the fire. Then you have the heating of that tortilla in a pan. It was probably like a Dutch oven or cast iron. So yeah. you have all these. And then you start wrapping this all together. It could, it could have been a Coleman stove. So it could have been white gas too. Who knows? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, you know. Does that make it? It makes it better maybe. I don't know. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and then, you know, and it's, it's, you're capturing that whole essence of the environment that you're in. Because if you if you had that exact burrito right now sitting downtown, it's not going to taste the same as out the there. Not the same burrito, right? And it's that, not and that's the same what, burrito. That's what makes it unique. Because you're not a little yeah. cold, and you haven't been walking all day, and you're not maybe a little bit sunburned, and right. you're not sleeping in a tent, mm-hmm. and you don't smell like a goat. Because if you're antelope hunting, you smell like a goat. So. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Well. I just, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit at the breaks, but we, Nico and I, are both just impressed. It's so interesting, the work you're doing, and we're so grateful as citizens of the area that you guys are focused on restoring the river. So I just want to thank you for that. And then also, how do you um, get involved? I know you mentioned there's volunteers you use to, to plant the trees. What should somebody do who's kind of living the, the, the regular life? They don't know necessarily how to get involved. What's the best way for them to connect more with the community and with the Nature Conservancy? Well, I can't, I can't directly link you to a volunteer opportunity on the Truckee. The way that that's formatted, I don't, I don't manage that. And there's not as many opportunities where if you're like, I want to go out there and work this spring to say that, you know, on this date, there'll be an organized event. Um, but we do frequently have them. And the best way to check on those would be at the nature conservancies, uh, website, you know, you just Google that. Um, and then there's a tab, I think it's where we work, and then it'll link you to Nevada. And you can, um, you can check there if there are upcoming opportunities. We have a lot of partner agencies that do a lot of great work. And they, you know, if you wanted to come down on these projects, we do, we do Keep Truckee's Medi, uh, Keep Truckee Meadows beautiful cleanups every year down here. This is one of the sites. That would be a perfect place to come out and do it and you can you can definitely lend a hand because all of the garbage from Reno winds up coming down here and as we speak we've done multiple cleanups I mean you guys did a yep. cleanup Nico uh, down here this fall and you guys didn't get it all there's no way you can get it all there's so much stuff so if you wanted to help out on your own you could come down here and explore these projects and bring a little bag and take home whatever garbage you find uh, take that home with you I think another thing that people can really do is come out and visit these projects um, and visit them on foot or on a bike and, you know, experience them and, you know, try to be as, um, you know, leave no trace as you can, Um, you know, leave things as you found them, come and enjoy them and, you know, enjoy them within the rules. I think that's the thing that... um, that's huge because every little step you make when you come to a, 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 a beautiful place that you love, 
the biggest threats to some of those places are us ourselves overusing them. So however gentle you can be with those natural places is, is really good. And if you see rules or things like that and you don't understand why they're that way, you know, do some research, learn about it. Um, they're there for a reason, not just because we don't want people to do certain things, but if the place is, is limited to vehicle traffic or, or vehicle traffic's forbidden, there's a reason why. Because, you know, when you open something up to everybody with their truck, next thing you know, somebody, that one person shows up and does something wrong and, you know. Sure. It's yeah. expensive and it takes a long time to clean up. And, you know, there's a lot of us and there's not a lot of, you know, cool spots left. So that's true. You have to take care of them. Um, but you definitely should go and take care of them and be passionate about them. Because if, if nobody cares about those places and nobody visits them, they won't get the help that they need because nobody will even notice when it disappears on you. Just like the Truckee River, I think a lot of people don't realize what we lost, you know? Yeah, and I think that's that's part of our mission here, like with with, with Fairfish and then and the networking with folks like yourself, Chris, is all this work that you've done, Nature Conservancy's done, um, in this area, we, we want it to go noticed, recognized, mm-hmm. remembered, just like you said, keep it active in people's minds, introduce it as many times as possible, that way... People could come down and enjoy it at see it or at least, you know, go like, oh look, wow, like this is this is something special. Like and it's right in my backyard and it's been here this whole time. Yeah. You know. And you it's know, so it's done for them, it's done for us. Right. Absolutely. And you know, even if, if I know you guys have a fishing, you know, angle for this whole thing, but if somebody loves the outdoors but they're like, you know, I don't like fishing. Yeah. It's not my bag, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do that. That's but I still wanna go see it. You know, you should if that's the case, you should buy a federal duck stamp and you should buy a fishing license and don't use it. That's fine. But the fee that you pay for those things funds conservation. Um, whereas if you just come out and visit it, unless you, you know, you can donate to the organization of your choice, that definitely goes there. But, you know, a lot of people go out and they don't, you know, they're like, how do I give to this? It's like, there's a lot of ways you can give to it. And, um, you know, donating to the Nature Conservancy or um, buying a fishing license or buying a federal duck stamp or buying, you know, anything that's going to help with the management of natural resources is definitely um, one thing that someone could do. Sure. That's great. Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. But hey, Chris, thanks for your time. Thank you. I know it's valuable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, no glad we, I'm glad we got to connect, especially this time of year. And I think, I think there's a lot of things that we'll probably circle back on because mm-hmm. there is a lot to talk about in the river, but I think we covered some of the basics. And, and with that being said, I think we'll, we'll transcribe some of this onto um, the bearfishalliance.com website. Mm-hmm. So we can like, and basically we'll have like a, a little mini, you know, past, present, future type thing that you can catch up on, on the river if we need a, want to dive into a little bit more of the history aspect and we'll throw a link on there for um, that tricky the Truckee River chronology that you pointed me to which is just a it's just a, it's incredible if, if you print it out it's big <laughs> we, got it, <laughs> we got it spread out all over the place here it's just all kinds of great info but is there anything else you like to add or throw out there Chris <laughs> no I think I think that covers it I mean awesome. you know yeah. just uh, yeah I think I said it all yeah awesome there's still more to say but there is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, well, thanks again. I I feel very educated, and 
I, I love this experience being here on the ranch. It's a cool spot. I'll call you guys next time I got something really, uh, really difficult to do out here. Yanking uh, trees like out of the ground before. to plant them. That's really hard. Yeah, I've been subject to your little... <laughs> <laughs> We're also waiting for a river tour. Your We're... next one. Oh, those are phenomenal. Oh, phenomenal. you're talking about the float tours that we've done in the past, or just? Uh, oh well, I was referring. I was referring to <laughs> the planning. I've done a couple plannings with them, and he's like, "Oh, we're doing this," and you show up, and it's like it's completely changed. It's hard work. Oh yeah. I mean, it's it's you walk away like, wow, like I wasn't ready for that, but it, the, the the reward that you have walking away from it's great, mm-hmm. and you can see the results. You can come out later in the year because normally you do them in the spring. Yeah. You could come out later in the year and you could see the results. You're like, hey, look, I planted that wild rose or that. Yeah. That, but that was a buffalo berry. Buffalo you know? berry. Those things are doing doing good down there. Yeah. It'll take them a couple of years to really get to a size. But um, you, you're like, eh, nothing's happening, nothing happening. And three years later, you're like, oh, my God. There's yeah. there's just everything over here. So Right. Yeah. it's it, This is a great spot. Um, McCarran Ranch is a great spot to come all year long. Um it's a little hot in the middle of the summer, but even then, I mean, it's just, it's just great, you know, come and walk around. Super awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks. And until next time, we'll, uh, we'll circle our wagons and come back to this. Right. Thanks again, Chris. Thanks again. You're welcome.